What about education is radical? Welcome to Black Sheep, a radical podcast analyzing theory through the lens of education. My name is Mila, and I'm a college student at Barnard College in New York, majoring in comparative literature and educational studies. In this introductory episode, we will analyze components of radicalization according to Paulo Freire in Pedagogy of the Oppressed and relate the idea of radical thinking to education. Sit back and relax as Yuval Denor and I discuss concepts of liberation through curriculum, the influences of change and reflection, and our own experiences of education through the lens of Freire. Hello, everyone. My name is Mila Rahim. I am right now with Yuval Denor, and Yuval is a graduate from Barnard College, and I'm going to actually let her introduce herself a little bit more, but I kind of wanted to talk about why this podcast is called Black Sheep. I had started this idea maybe about like like maybe starting in October of last year, so 2021, and I had done a couple podcasts before, and I was thinking about what is the best way to be really obnoxious about theory over a podcast, um, and I thought we could just talk about theory through education, through the lens of education, and Black Sheep is kind of something, The specifically the title is something that means a lot to me just because being a black sheep is something that I have like identified with all my life in the classroom, outside of the classroom, in my personal life. And this is just almost like an encompassing idea through that and adding on theory and education. So Yuval, I'm going to have you introduce yourself and then also talk a little bit about what being a black sheep means to you. Yeah, I'd love to. Well, thank you so much for having me on. My name is Yuval Denor. I am a graduate of Barnard College, use she, her pronouns. And when I was at Barnard, I studied American studies and created my own track in the major titled Education, Civic Engagement, and Community. So the questions that I found myself grappling with throughout my Barnard experience were of ones that I found a really kindred spirit with a lot of the revolutionary educators that the Black Sheep podcast is seeking to be in dialogue with. I really struggled my way through four years of school here and felt a lot of the time like even though I wasn't, it wasn't that I felt that my classes were too hard or boring or anything like that, but I just had this sense of existentialism about my education for a lot of my degree and feeling like you know, I'm sitting here and I'm reading a bunch of theory and I'm writing my own thoughts on thoughts that other academics have to publish in a setting that's academic and wondering what this really insular cycle of talking about abstract ideas was doing to change the world and how I could create an educational path for myself or even for other people that is a path that actively equips people with skills to meaningfully dismantle harmful systems in the world around them that they identify. And that was really hard and something that took me, I guess, four years to come to some semblance of an answer about. And there were definitely, you know, several points where I wanted to drop out, I wanted to transfer, and getting, you know, getting a bachelor's degree is something that I'd been told, you know, my whole life that I was working towards and that was, you know, this symbol of like change and of progress in my life. 
And yeah, it was hard for me to be in this space of feeling anything but with, you know, going to a school that was supposedly like the best school I could have gotten into that aligned with the kind of dreams that I had. So I took a lot of inspiration in my time at Barnard, both in reading texts that were written by other people who had some sort of friction with normative education and wanted to think on it or to make things specifically, make spaces that worked in other ways. So my research in my time at Barnard focused on alternative learning spaces, specifically ones that did not identify as institutions and seeing what collectives where people are coming together to teach and learn without this moniker identity of an institution um, do that's different than a set a normal school that I had been raised in, at least educationally. So Paula Freire, who I know we'll be speaking greatly about today, was a really grounding, inspirational influence in a lot of that questioning that I did. And it concluded for me in my senior thesis, which was an oral history podcast project as well, where I followed the Highlander Research and Education Center, which is a community center for political organizers and activists in the South and in Appalachia that self-identifies as a school and looking as to how activists teach each other to change the world in this sort of space and learning a lot of amazing things from those conversations. So I would say I'm really inspired as, you know, in the spirit of black sheephood, I'm very inspired by, by people that come together to think and create in settings and group spaces that are different from many of the ones I was raised in. And in trying, you know, to bring a lot of those lessons and ethoses back to spaces that are institutional, I feel that I am carrying forward some sort of black sheep duty. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me as well, I, because I'm still, I'm a first year at Barnard. So my, my experiences are still very on primary and secondary education. And in primary school, like elementary school, I had no type of idea to like no type of concept to think for myself. It was all about what the teacher told me to think and how the teacher told me to think. And then when I got into high school, I started to realize how corrupt that was. And when I went against those ideas, I would have some type of consequence under them. And for me, I kind of lost my myself as an educator because I personally believe, and I think also Freire talks about this, we are all educating each other, no matter how old we are and what dynamic is present in the room or the environment. And as an educator, I kind of lost my ability to feel or have faith in what I was telling people and teaching people. I started to experience this, especially in my junior and senior year of high school, when my racist principal decided to have this almost like uh, a seminar about like what he needed to do to change the high school environment. Um, and we basically told him, don't be racist. Um, but instead, he kind of shifted the narrative to make it as if it was the student's fault that he was racist. And it was the student's fault that there were disproportionate rates of suspension for black and brown students and a huge push out for black and brown students in their in that community. 
And that's when I started to realize that educating is so much more important than I had perceived it to be, um, because there are so many people in power that abuse that power dynamic and don't use it to actually um, fulfill the purpose of education. And I think Frary, if we're going to do like a quick like introduction of his work, has always talked about the power of change and the power of adapting in an environment, um, and specifically the the concept of liberation through change and liberation through education. Paulo Freire was born in 1921 in northern Brazil, where his own experiences of poverty and hunger influenced his life work. And his life work kind of consisted of developing the concept of critical consciousness or conscientization, which is all based on having the ability to read and analyze your world individually by questioning the nature of their social and historical situations. And he also kind of says that he analyzes education or views education by not only reading and analyzing word, but also reading and analyzing the world. There are a couple quotes that he says in Pedagogy of the Press that I kind of wanted to start with and introducing the general ideas of radicalization and also kind of talking about how maybe you, Yuval, and then also me, like how we've been radicalized in the classroom according to Freire's ideas. So like radicalization criticizes and thereby liberates. I think for me, the concept of radicalization has never really been introduced to me until I started to read my own sense of theory outside of the classroom. We didn't really read a lot of theory in high school. I was from the South, so critical race theory was a very, very serious and controversial topic at the time. And as soon as I was graduating, that was when it first started to get implemented as something positive. So I never actually got to experience it in the way that I wanted to. So during the pandemic, I kind of started to collect my uh, revenue of different theory. It was almost as if once I started to introduce myself to that part of radicalization, I started to see parts of myself feel liberated because I all of the things that I had experienced through elementary school, middle school, high school was kind of now being explained in a way that was technical and um, almost related to all of the things that I was experiencing was satisfied and reassured um, through the books that I was reading. I think when I first started reading Pedagogy of the Oppressed, I had so many thoughts and ideas about graduating and coming from such a controversial high school, living in this new area in New York where liberation was almost common, but it was not advertised in the right way, if that makes sense. Liberation can be very performative um, and radicalization can be very performative. And I think one of the main things that I kind of got from Paulo Freire is that there is a very, very strong responsibility for the oppressed to kind of tell the difference when radicalization is being performative of when it actually is being like a sense of liberation. Yeah, no, I think I think it's really special. I mean, for what it's worth, on the record or not, Milan and I have never met before. Um, and I think it's I think it's really special to like meet you and get to know you through this text because I think the way that different people connect to this text is so telling of a lot of really fundamental truths and identities that they hold. And I very much I very much hear a lot of what you're saying and um, yeah, resonate, resonate with it. So Pedagogy of the Oppressed was published in 1968, which is, you know, a really, a really transformational time globally in general. In Brazil specifically, there was a military coup in 1964 that took place that was backed by the U.S. 
And that coup resulted, the coup resulted in a few things, one of which was Paulo Freire being exiled from Brazil after he had been it for a long time building this campaign of literacy across, you know, all sorts of different rural villages and spaces in Brazil that was actually really analogous. And that's what brought him ultimately to the South. He worked with Highlander uh, in Tennessee, the place that I wrote my thesis about. It brought him to the South because there were really analogous movements towards literacy in order to get people registered to vote, both in Brazil and in the U.S. happening at the same time. And this became this sort of solidarity, global solidarities movement that also really spurred a lot of the writing and pedagogy of the oppressed to be not just about what's happening in classrooms, but like you said earlier, which I think is so important about the ways that teaching and learning is just sort of a way, a language through which people relate to each other in community and what it means to be a community that is, you know, upholding values of equity, of justice, of liberation, imagination, creation, all of these ideas that feel almost fantastical. They feel, it feels, it feels childish to me sometimes to imagine a society where community looks and feels that way when community all around us is, I feel, often defined by different conditions of oppression and rather than conditions of collective liberation. And I think in that way, Pedagogy of the Oppressed is a book that reflects on, you know, learning as a vessel for recreating our society. And in that way, I think that sense of accountability that you're talking about with radicalization, of staying aware of what is performative and what is real, is something that I find so profound because it escalates beyond this sense of how we are building classrooms to just, you know, what kind of faith do we need to have in one another and what kind of behaviors and meaningful actions do we all need to be taking to inspire faith from others to be a resilient community. I think so I kind of want to like go and expand on that concept of being a vessel because I think beginning in chapter one and two we see this concept of curriculum and the meaning behind the curriculum and how he uh, views the curriculum as words being emptied of their concreteness and becoming hollow alienated and alienating verbosity and Mm. I almost like that when I read that, I was like, this this is exactly how I've been feeling. It, it goes back to that like full circle moment for me where I am now like no longer just this like crazy person that thinks that like what we're learning in school is actually not that important, um, especially in primary and secondary education. Post-secondary education is something that I feel like we can kind of go into in regards to the privilege behind post-secondary education. Right. Um, but when I am am thinking about the the concepts of a curriculum and like the narration technique in regards to how a teacher creates a certain narrative that is then fed into the student, it always goes back to that power dynamic of the oppressor and the oppressed. He also kind of goes into like the concept of depositing, um, where it's like mm. the deposition of of knowledge is no longer authentic, and 
concepts of a curriculum is just completely artificial now, um, especially within primary and secondary education. If I'm thinking of examples, I guess like for me, I, I never really... I don't really remember anything that I learned in elementary school um, because it was all not about like actually retaining the information. It was about memorizing at the time so that you could achieve a certain goal. It was never actually like a receptive idea of learning and adapting and creating within that reception. It was all about how much can I memorize within a certain period of time so that I can pass this test or quiz or whatever and feel a sense of temporary achievement. And, and and this is not something that it kind of brings up, but now that I'm thinking about it, all that post and secondary education did was provide temporary a temporary feeling of accomplishment and not actual type of a, a sense of emotional and educational achievement. And that's why a lot of the concepts of grades and like critical race theory specifically is all under like under wraps of like what is what it actually does to the student the the difference between deposition and equal transaction of thoughts and ideas is really really important in the classroom and I kind of maybe we can expand a little bit on that of like what it means to have an equal transaction within the classroom I think that something that I find really incredible about Paulo Freire's model which he you know, he contrasts between a banking method of education, which is this deposition process that you're talking about, Mila, where a teacher a teacher possesses all that is known and needs to be known, and a student's role is to just absorb it. Then, you know, I think that there are some there are some assumed truths in that that say a lot about about community creation, as I was talking about before. I think, you know, in a, in a banking model, then students themselves are not assumed to produce or possess knowledge beyond content that is narrated to them by a power figure who supposedly bears it all. And I think also within that is this other assumption that the world is static and unchangeable and education is solely meant to teach students how to fit into a structure that, you know, adult power figures know rather than instilling them with skills to, you know, analyze it and change it. And in that way, you know, the banking method of education is one that is a tool of regime protection and of hierarchy and hegemony protection. I think that to that end, there's a that's a reason that emotional education is something that is not explicitly taught in most primary and secondary schools and why a lot of education in general is built around this model of teaching people pe- people's concepts like to- topics rather than skills so we can you know best case scenario a critical race theory class in a high school may teach you, you know, some writing that people wrote, may teach you some history from, you know, we were talking about with like narrative crafting from some type of perspective, be it even like a particularly, a particularly realistic and fair perspective, but will it teach you active skills to like oppose racist power figures in the school, for instance, i.e. your principal that we were talking about earlier. And And so I think 
to talk, go back to what you had been saying too about like performative radical work and actionable radical work. I think that this this sort of distance between talking about concepts as ideas and working through topics as skills and as actions that we need to learn together how to enact is a really big separation between the banking method of education and its contrast to the problem-posing method of education that Frary writes about. And this is, you know, Frary's, Frary doesn't speak explicitly in the text about the difference between dealing with school as a space of ideas versus school as a space of practicing actions. But I think that's a conclusion that really helped me identify what worked about the learning spaces that I felt like I got a lot out of and I felt really connected to the people I was sharing them with. I felt over time that this is a consistent overlap I've had where the places where I feel that I am learning the most and I am really just completely immersed in what's happening are also spaces where I feel a really strong sense of community. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think that it really speaks to the fact that when we were creating learning spaces that are, you know, places of, ex- of constant exchange and co-creation of knowledge, which I think is a really important, like, further step to just swapping what we already know to making more knowledge as a group, then the the piece there that really needs to be central to make a, like, anti-banking method learning space is to strike both these chords, both to, you know, think really actionably about like, what are, what are material practices that we want to be putting, you know, getting, getting practice out of in this learning space? And also, what kind of, what kind of truths and needs and expectations do we are mandatory for the members of community that are in here? to abide by and take on so that we can have the mutual trust and faith to do co-creative work, which is something that requires a lot, of tr- a lot of trust and a lot of vulnerability because it peers into spaces of extremely complicated and historically dense cycles of harm and calls upon us to try things that we may have never tried before to attempt to attempt to write them in some way shape or form yeah that sense of vulnerability is so powerful i think very kind of highlights that sense of vulnerability that comes with the transactions you make in the classroom and the classroom environment specifically so i kind of i kind of want to ask like how has education and being vulnerable to education transformed you in the best and worst ways yeah that's a that's a big question I think, okay, I'll start by sharing as well that I, I'm a dancer as on top of, you know, the different kind of academic things that I did in my time at Barnard. Um, I was also taking this dance class for the entire duration of my college career, which if you're a, a Barnard community member and you're listening to this, I highly recommend it. It's called Modern Four and it's taught by Caroline Furman. Uh, it, it's an improvisation-based class that you know, looks at improvisation from a bunch of different lenses. But something that I found incredibly special about being in that class 
beyond just, you know, the fact that I got to, to dance around in it, was the fact that being in this class was a space where I was constantly doing two things. I was being called upon to be in a very slow process of discovering and understanding new things about my own body privately, and also to do those in community with other people, to be improvising together. And and I think because it was, you know, such an action-centered thing to be doing, I mean, to literally be moving and dancing, then I got a lot of really profound conclusions out of being in that community space that ended up really showing themselves in a lot of other spaces that I occupied, be them both like academically, professionally, personally. And it to the point where my it and it made it into my thesis. I ended up, you know, writing a whole episode of my podcast just about improvisation and improvisation theory and how education is an improvisational act when it's done in a liberatory fashion. What does that even mean in practice? And so I think that I learned, I mean, I could honestly talk for two hours just about the various things I learned from being in that improvisational dance class. But the class is a space where I was held accountable to being extremely vulnerable, mostly all the time, which was hard, but I think it built this kind of resilience within me to you know, tap into that space of of wonder and uncertainty and feeling, you know, feeling safer and more inquisitive within it over time. And I think it really made me think a lot more about this sort of, you know, parallel processes that we're on in learning spaces where we are both co-creating, as we've been talking about, we're exchanging knowledge, we're you know, all of us are teachers, all of us are learners. But in order to do that, we also have to have a really intentional internal process within that of both reflecting upon what's happening, both, you know, privately being our own teacher and learner, and, you know, doing a lot of meaningful self-reflection, which self-reflection looks very different for different people. Um, And, getting all of the sort of internal conclusions that we need to in order to show up in a a space as a community member that is receptive, that is open, and that is, you know, creative, which I think are the building blocks to a really generative and fruitful learning experience. So I think that's a space that I was definitely held accountable to being very vulnerable and that I grew immensely from. Holds a dear spot in my heart for sure. Yeah, I mean, for me, the sense of vulnerability, I think, is just almost feeling safe with the idea of change and that yeah. certain like subject or um, environment changing you completely and you being vulnerable to that change. And I think one thing for me, I did a, a junior level class last semester for urban studies um, and we kind of researched on uh, different aspects of uh, specifically uh, metropolitan change and within New York specifically. And my, uh, my final paper was about the establishment of third spaces in primary um, schools. And I think one of the main things, like a third space specifically, is the space that you are able to insert yourself in that is outside the school environment and outside your home environment. And one of the main things that I had learned about 
having so many third spaces, either in clubs or after school programs or just curricula, like extracurricular activities, I almost feel like my identity was shaped the most by being in those third spaces and expanding outside of the classroom environment is when my identity flourished the most. I'll give an example. I'm a part of this program called the Emily K Center that I had, which is basically facilitated by or found by uh, Coach K, uh, Coach Shisevsky, um, who is the Duke basketball coach. Um, and he made the program slash building after his mother. And it enforces this concept of college readiness for um, underprivileged children. And I was there since my freshman year. However, the whole program can go until like since you're like in kindergarten. And it like brings up this establishment of preparing you for college or also just preparing you for a career. And I think one of the main things that I learned from being in that program is that there is so much faith and so much vulnerability that comes with learning outside of your comfort zone and also like building yourself outside of that comfort zone. I think one thing that's really unfortunate about curriculum um, within classrooms is that there is a sense of a comfort zone that is very, very hard to get out of. I mean, it's very, very, it's almost like, it's like a sin. It's almost like a problem when you try to get out of that comfort zone because that comfort zone is what should bring you success. However, third spaces, the role of a third space is to get you out of that comfort zone so you can shape your identity in an environment that is fit for you. And I think if we're kind of like expanding more on like, what is the meaning behind a curriculum? I think and like what the what the possibility of a curriculum can be can be introduced by the concept of praxis that Freire goes into. So like blending theory and practice and embodying and enacting theory in an environment is really, really important. And I think like the identity of a praxis and also like the concept of education being constantly made in the praxis, as he says in the book, is like almost it almost like brings together this full circle moment of like a praxis influencing theory and then that in itself, the theory in itself influencing the student and then the student influences the teacher and so on and so forth. So once that teacher creates that praxis, that praxis influences the theory and then that theory influences the student and that student then creates a transaction that is beneficial for the student and the teacher. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think that third spaces are in many ways the nexus of praxis where because I think that, I mean, in many third spaces, there are, you know, people are self-selecting to be there. So there is a voluntary community, which makes a big difference. I think that that's a really different setting to learn in either in a, you know, intentional education program way or in just a, we are coexisting and gaining things from being together and doing a set of activities by, so you have a, you have a voluntary community and you have a, you have a really, you know, mixed sense of goals. I think many public schools, even private schools are held to state standards to some degree. So there is an externally enforced goal to what education looks like, regardless of how radical and liberatory the educators within it wish to be. And I think their curriculums end up really reflecting that. I'll say, I didn't mention this earlier, but since graduating, I've been 
working still at Barnard. I've been working as the coordinator of a program called STEAM in the City, which is a program that supports public school teachers and other community educators in Harlem in creating experiential learning opportunities that had to do with STEAM subjects in the public parks for their students. So we help them both, you know, obtain supplies to do that, grant money to do that. We connect them to all sorts of faculty and staff at Barnard that are doing a variety of different sorts of research in STEM and arts and design fields. And yeah, and our our task really is to invent inventive learning experiences for these, for the young people that are part of these classrooms, which, you know, I, I say this because I am now in this role through this program of thinking about curriculum from a really opposite perspective to how I had been experiencing curriculum for much of the past, oh my gosh, I guess 16 years of K through 12 plus my undergrad career as a student. And thinking, you know, I am kind of one degree removed from the teachers themselves. I myself am not teaching these classes, running these learning experiences alone, but we together are having this hand in thinking about how we can provide experiences that are going to are going to counter the kinds of very prescriptive and honestly often very banking style standards that are state state derived um, that these teachers have to build within when they're creating learning experiences. So that is all to say that I think a lot of the answer that we've been finding to this question has been in doing, you know, two things. One is a lot of really intentional community building work within the classes that projects that we take on are meant to, you know, group and partner students in an assortment of different ways with an assortment of different goals. And also to, you know, ground the curriculums that we're writing and the kind of experiences that we're creating together to be really, you know, grappling with the local context in which they're happening, you know, instead of looking, for instance, at ecology as this sort of high level, conceptual, far away thing, then we're walking around Harlem and looking at, you know, what does, for instance, the shade disparity in different parts of this neighborhood mean for the residents of this neighborhood? Like why why does East Harlem have so many fewer trees than Morningside Heights does? And I think within, you know, interrogating the way that these subjects and topics are playing out like right in front of us and right in the lives that we're walking through and living every single day right here. Then, then I mean, the groups of students that we're working with, and we work with students of very varying ages. We have kindergartners, we have eighth graders, we have 10th graders, anywhere in between. Then the, the kids themselves are starting to come up with all sorts of their own ideas of, okay, well, what do we do with that? What is the what what do we want to what do we want to create together? Like what is this praxis of action that we are going to bring into the theoretical work that we're doing 
to see it play out in our own community in some way. So that has been, I think, a really, really instructive process for me to sit on the other end of right now and reanalyze how people who are in roles of, I don't know, power, but who have the kind of responsibility handed to them of being curriculum designers, curriculum shapers, can meaningfully impact the direction of learning experiences they build to be more praxis oriented and therefore more problem posing. Yeah, for sure. I think one thing also is the concept of like relating praxis to dialogue and how through dialogue a praxis is achieved. I think one of the main things is like the the concept of being a radical is all through being dialogical and creating a dialogue which then creates a praxis and I want I wonder if like you can also answer this, but I I wonder if even for me as just someone who is still going through the process of being influenced by education very greatly, um, how can I create a dialogue for myself internally, but also with other people? And also like with this podcast as well, I think this is a step towards a specific dialogue about education. I think Frary is going to come up a lot through this podcast and unintentionally, but just like just his concept of being the dialogical man and also um, having having an insertive idea of praxis for the individual, which then creates a connection with another person that is also individually creating their own praxis and dialogue. And like, what is the radical, what is a radical and like, what is praxis is, is very, very specific to the individual. And I can't, I can't really buckle down on like, how much that has like influenced my way of thinking. Um, it, it's just like a very important part of my life, creating a dialogue and creating praxis. And I didn't realize that until reading the book. And also like the concepts of like lost radicalism as well and being like losing a sense of praxis because like radicalism can be so performative is also something that I think like is influenced by how dialogue can like further further a sense of faith in humankind and faith in yourself I'm kind of wondering if there's this like connection between praxis and humanization because I wrote this down as like circling back to humanization in the classroom and the humanization of students and how can we through dialogue feel humanized in the classroom and critically thinking in the classroom how can that create a sense of humanization Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll circle back to earlier, we spoke about emotional education, and how that is a, you know, discipline uh, that doesn't really show up, that doesn't show up in primary and secondary schooling. It's kind of implicitly in the air that by being in this classroom that a bunch of other people are in that you will learn how to be a good communicator, how to be open to an assortment of different ideas. But, you know, I, I, at least, you know, I grew up in public schools and then I came to Barnard, which is a private school for my undergrad career. But I don't think at really any point, or at least I'd say very seldom, did anybody sit down me and my peers and have like a very frank conversation with us about that, about, you know, how can we how can we be participants in dialogue together in a way that gives, you know, makes other people 
feel empowered to imagine together and to have, you know, there were always, you know, encouragements from teachers of you should, you should raise your hand, even if you don't have the full idea figured out and thinking out loud and things like that. But again, I think that people are really rarely actually handed and taught and given practice, specific practice opportunities to build the skills that are necessary in order to facilitate that kind of environment. So I think, I mean, I'm a really strong believer. I was a speaking fellow when I was at Barner and shout out speaking fellows. I'm a really strong believer that people, everybody needs to have very, very intentional, active listening education in, you know, be it in a school setting, be it in a third space. I don't care. I think that we like reasonably cannot move forward to making fundamental structural changes as a society before we are operating within a collective where more people than not have like trained in that skill. And I think, I mean, that is also a pillar of effective dialogue and dialogue, you know, being space where before we're able to be in dialogue about imagining change and imagining a world of difference, a world, you know, a world where we have rebuilt structures that were are created to create and reinforce oppression. So before we can be in imaginative dialogue, we have to at least be able to be in reflective dialogue where we are honestly talking about the conditions in which we coexist. And, you know, that sounds really big and profound, but I think you know, beyond doing this work on a global reckoning scale, we have to be able to do that radical work in a very like microscopic fashion as well. I think people, people need to, along with active listening training, I think we would get a lot out of people being taught conflict mediation skills in educational spaces. Because again, I think that in order to in order to assume a radical identity, to be like a dialogical man, like Prairie is talking about, then we, it comes back to me again and again to what are these community building and reinforcing skills. And those I think are ones that really humanize members of a classroom. They are the skills that allow us to see our peers beyond you know, beyond just like, did this person get this kind of grade or this kind of grade on an assignment or turn this thing in or do this part of a group project or make this kind of a point? Like, What is the context in which people sh- are showing up to this classroom are showing up to different kinds of discussions? What is, I mean, even in spaces where the CEP, for instance, did this really amazing series last summer called Centering Burdening, which talks about how different educational spaces can and should meaningfully take anti-racist actions without placing the burden on students of color, black and brown students to drive the process of taking that anti-racist change making in the space and holding the space accountable for that. But uh, yeah, I think the the reason I bring that up is because that is a, that is a series where students wrote 
again and again and again about different lenses through which people people have to be humanized in a classroom and have to be seen as individuals that have greater identities than just student in order for the classroom space to meaningfully create community that isn't, you know, just like being safe and brave for some folks while falling onto the backs of others to uphold the that kind of action, those sort of values. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I also, I do want to say this quote um, before we conclude. Ferry says that, because this kind of goes into like what you were saying about, um, it, it kind of just relates to the concept of an epic. Um, like an epic is a characterized is characterized by a complex of ideas, concepts, hopes, doubts, values, and challenges in a dialectical interaction with their opposites arriving or striving towards plentitude. And I think like, I don't know, there's this, there's such a power in feeling completely concrete in an idea. And I wish that there was just so much more that a curriculum did or teachers did to kind of help students get to that idea so that they can fit, like get that sense of satisfaction rather than feeling as if they have to find the satisfaction within themselves and then that satisfaction isn't tra- transitioned into um, just feeding them with a already altered idea of a certain subject. Yeah, I mean, I think that throughout, you know, at least my experience of reading theory, sometimes you read a text And it feels like somebody has verbalized a truth that you have seen and experienced in the world around you. And hearing that put into words has, is overwhelming. It's like, feels profound and it feels affirming to be reading language that really, you know, not even quantifies, but I guess frames these ideas that you have seen. And I think I feel that way a lot about this text. This text is one of those texts that I remember the first time I read it. And I remember how it felt to read it and how highlight I was highlighting basically every line of the text when I did my first read through for a class sophomore year. And I remember this line. I remember this line about libertarian education being about being a master of your own thinking and reckoning with what that means. I think that this sentiment, you know, behind it is a held belief that you you need to have some level of self-awareness of your own thinking in order to participate in a educational cycle that is liberatory. And so I think Freire's words hold us accountable to some degree to, yeah, to staying reflective, to staying observant, to, you know, I started, this is a running joke between me and my friends. I started journaling because of pedagogy of the oppressed. Um, Because I realized, you know, like, as much as I had never felt motivated to sit down and write about my own thoughts and my own daily experiences, out of mostly like, okay, I lived it. I don't need a reminder. I've been through it. Then I realized, you know, this like work of processing is not just about myself and me feeling fulfilled and like I'm growing. I have an accountability to other people that I care about and to just community as a whole, people I don't even know, to be arriving at a self-reflective place in my life and to be self-aware. I think as a community member, I have a duty to be a self-aware person. And Frary's text, 
I think is rooting us to that reminder and giving us a lot of inspiration and hope and a vision of what can happen when people who are thinking a lot about their individual needs and commitments towards a growing process of change can do when they come together with other people who are also doing that work. And again, you know, thinking about education as liberatory because it's a, it's this vessel for collective imagination. That gives me a lot of faith and a lot of hope in times that feel really dark sometimes and where a lot of people and events are going on in the world and that do honestly anything but inspire more faith and hope in a sense of greater community, then I know that in following these commitments that I gain from reading this text, that I can do, you know, my piece in building a world that I'd like to be a part of. Yeah, I mean, there is, there's such a a beautiful thing about having a duty of reflection as an educator, and also just as someone who is being educated constantly. Um, And I think, for me, as someone who has the role of both, and everyone has the role of both, and I think with this podcast, I, I want to uh, kind of highlight that, that we are always being educated and, and therefore we are always educating. And I think for me, this this duty that we have is so important that I think Frary, especially um, in the beginning chapters, talks about the duty of the oppressed and also the oppressor and like what that means in regards to protesting and liberating. Um, and our duty is all based upon our own reflection and our own sense of reflection through action. Um, and there's no liberation and there's no revolutionary thinking without action. And I kind of want to, I kind of want to end on that. Like that is such a, like the points have been very, very powerful um, throughout this episode. But I think like that is very, a very powerful way to end this. There is a revolutionary or there's a, there's such a revolutionary idea through action and liberation, but it is all through reflection of your own self. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of the Black Sheep Podcast. With listeners and supporters like you, we hope to continue creating episodes that spark the needed conversations for education and theory. Special thanks to the Center of Engaged Pedagogy and the LCK Slope Media Center at Barnard for providing the support needed for this podcast. The music you are listening to is by NYU student Christina Bate, and the beautiful art you're looking at is by Columbia student Beatrix Villiers, both very good friends of mine that made this project come to life. Be sure to follow the podcast on Spotify so you're up to speed on when new episodes are released, and share this episode with your friends and family to show your support. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.